We have finally reached the place of equality in society because the Olympics is finally allowing biological men who identify as female to compete with females in the weightlifting competition. Finally, men will be able to win more gold medals in the Olympics and we'll actually be able to see a more level playing field. Also today on the show, we are going to be talking about why science is being censored. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to the Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Episode 234 today is, I'm recording on June 23rd. You'll be getting into your ears on the 24th of June, 2021, or later. But the Olympics has released a very fascinating uh, statement. They actually released a statement back in 2016 where they they updated their transgender guidelines, essentially making it so that if a biological male identifies as a female, they can now compete in female sports. And now we have the first, uh, for some reason they're saying openly transgendered, as if there might have been a transgendered person before that competed that we didn't know, but the first transgendered biological male who, whose gender they identify as female is, is competing in weightlifting. Of all the competitions, surely men's frames are superior, they're bigger, they're stronger than a woman's frame. Their bone density, their muscle density, the testosterone, everything, the frame of a man is bigger and stronger than that of a female. But here we have Laurel who is competing against the women. And here's what his competitor, Tracy Lambridge, on uh, RT News had to say about this decision and had to say about her, him. I'm going to mess up Laurel's pronouns this whole time. So forgive me ahead of time if, if you, for some reason, are offended because I don't know whether to refer to his biological chromosomes as a male or to refer to his gender, which could be fluid, right? The left is saying that gender is fluid. This is what social constructionists say, that gender is fluid. So you could be whatever. So I'm not trying to be rude if I miss up the pro- mess up the pronouns, but regardless, here's a trip by, by, by Tracy. Whenever we have tried to speak up, um, we've been told that we can't say that. And anything we do say um, could potentially lead to being taken to the human rights court. So we've been disencouraged every step of the way. And even to this day, athletes are still being told to be quiet and not talk about it. Laurel was a weightlifter before the transition. So having transitioned in the 30s, um, that athlete would have still had the benefits of testosterone for 30 years. So there's no way as a woman we can compete against a transgendered athlete who's had the benefits of testosterone for that long. Even with having to lower it, the lowered amount is still nearly 10 times the amount the average female. There's a reason why in sport we do have male and female categories. And by allowing this to happen, it's just blurring the lines. There is a reason as she said, that we have difference between male and female sports. It's to create a fair 
an equal playing field where women can compete against women and men can compete against men. Because if we didn't have that distinction between the biological sexes, then men would be crushing women at nearly every sport and women would be kicked out of the Olympics just because they wouldn't be able to qualify because men are that much stronger. The number one, the, the number one seeded female in tennis will nine out of 10 times lose to the 200 seed male in tennis. It's, it's because of our biology, males, our bone densities, our testosterone levels, our muscle densities, we are created different. We are equal as, as humans. We have equal rights, but we are constructed differently. And the, the whole transgendered movement, if, if you really stop and think about the argument that they're making, is they're saying, I was born in the wrong body. I have an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome, but my gender, what I feel, what I identify on the inside emotionally is something different. So, okay, so let's say I go along with that for the case of argument. And we, we look at Laurel Hubbard and say, you are a biological male who your gender, you identify as a female, but you're still a biological male. Maybe your gender, you identify that your gender is female, but the reason that we split the sports between male and female is not because we have different emotions. It's not because males like things more than women do and women like people and more interested in people more than men, which is, is true. It's the biggest difference between the sexes is our, our interest in things versus people. That's not why we split that. That's not why we split sports. We split sports because of biological differences. So why is this not, why does that not hold? Why isn't Laurel Hubbard as a biological male competing with other biological males? Or why aren't we creating a class for transgender people to, to compete in? If we want to have that equality, if we're really saying that we want to have a fair and level playing field, and they've done this with the Special Olympics. They've done this with the Special Olympics where if an athlete loses an arm or a limb or or born that way, they have a place where they can compete as athletes. And it's amazing. It's great. That's why we have it. So we can have a fair and level playing field. So why don't they create something like that for transgendered people? After all, they are saying that there is some sort of dysphoria that is going on where, where their, their mind gender is not matching up with their coded DNA of XXXY chromosome. But this is what, this is what the, the IOC, the, the, the Olympics said, the International Olympic Committee they they released a long, long statement in 2016, but here are the highlights. Point E, they said, to require surgical changes as a precondition to participate is not necessary to preserve fair competition and may be inconsistent with developing legislation and the notion of human rights. What that means is, if you are a female, you don't need to get any work done to be able to compete with the males. In fact, what they say, if you are a 
a biological born female who identifies as a male, you can instantly, as you wish, compete with the males. There's nothing you need to do. You just have to identify as male. I guess you can't change that identification for four years after you compete, but that's what it is. For a male, you don't need to get anything chopped, chopped off. You're good to go. The only thing is your testosterone levels need to be below 10. And we're going to go into the differences between testosterone levels between men and women. And we'll see that this is just a, a joke statement. This is another funny thing that the IOC says in their statement. Nothing in these guidelines is intended to undermine in any way the requirement to comply with World Anti-Doping Code and the WADA international standards. If a woman is cranking up testosterone in training on testosterone and they get tested and they say, hey, you've been doping with testosterone, you can't compete. Well, what, what about a male, as was said in this clip, biological male who transitioned at 30 after being a weightlifter, after breaking high school records? Right now, uh, Hubbard is, is 47. And he set the national record in junior in the junior competition, I believe in high school, just after high school college, with a combined snatch and clean and jerk total of 300 kilograms or 661 pounds. He was training from a young age. So how can you say that, well, this isn't breaking any sort of doping regulations? Well, just because you have a natural male body Insane. So, so what are the regulations? Well, it, they say that the, the athlete has to declare their identity is female if you're a male. The declaration cannot be changed for sporting purposes. So it can be changed for other purposes, but not sporting pur pur purposes for a minimum of four years. And then they say 2.2, the athlete must demonstrate her total testosterone level in serum has been below 10 NMLOL per liter for at least 12 months prior to her first competition. Okay. And the and it has to stay below 10. So you think, okay, well, that that must be fair. That's probably like what a woman's is. But if you remember from this clip, she said it's five to ten times higher of the average female. So what what are the testosterone level differences between men and women? Well, I pulled up a study which said this, in healthy, normal males and females, there was a clear bimodal distribution of testosterone levels with the lower end, lower end of male ranges being four to five fold higher and the, than the upper end of the female range. So here's the the range for males for testosterone, it's 8.8 .8 to 30.9 as a male. The Olympics says that a male who identifies as a female has to have their levels at or underneath 10. So a male with lower testosterone, maybe they could already easily meet that level. And maybe take just a little bit of testosterone blockers and they can easily fall underneath that level. They, they do not need to change that much. So well, well, what's a female? The females clock in at 
0.4 to 2. So the upper end of a female level is 2, where the upper end of a male level is 30.9. The lower end of a female level is 0.4, and the lower end of a male is 8.8. But in order for a male to compete in the female competition, they just need to be underneath 10. I don't even know what what more to say. It is just mind blowing. The other the other mind blowing thing about this, when you look at the ages of of competitors in world class uh, weightlifting, the the average age for men and women is about twenty five to twenty six years old for weightlifting. Twenty five to twenty six years old. And on the upper end for males in in their competitions, about 4% of male athletes in Olympic weightlifting were between the ages of 32 and 35. And for women, it's, it's about the same. But here is Laurel Hubbard, 47 year old trans woman Competing against women who are in their 20s, that should say something. That should say that this person is not at the peak. It's not at the peak of their performance in life. They're not the best of the best as far in their class division. So it says that the fact that being a male, you're actually able to compete and you are much stronger than females naturally. Well, you can say, well, maybe he, maybe he's just not that good. He's just happened, she just happens to be a trans woman who isn't that great, but she's still made it into the Olympics. Well, not so. Let's look at her recent championships. In 2019, she, in world championships, she placed sixth. 2017 in the United States, she placed second. In 2018 in Australia, she broke her arm and uh, she almost left the competition altogether, left the the sport, but then her arm healed and that brought her back to the Olympics this year. 2019, so this is after this accident, 2019 in Samoa, first place. 2017, Gold Coast, Australia, first place. 2019, again, Samoa, first place. 2017, Commonwealth Games Championship, first place. Pacific Games, 2019, first place. World Master Games in 2017, first place in Auckland, New Zealand. Here is a male that is older than even the top echelon of weightlifters, a decade older beating all of biological females. And for some reason, we're supposed to say that this is is fair, that this is creating a fair and level playing field? Absolutely not. Just absolutely not. But there, a, a more important clip <laughs> that I want to play from Tracy, this is the beginning of her clip. I'm going to play it again. I want you to listen to what she says. Whenever we have tried to speak up, um, we've been told that we can't say that and anything we do say um, could potentially lead to being taken to the human rights 
courts. So we've been disencouraged every step of the way. And even to this day, athletes are still being told to be quiet and not talk about it. They can't even talk about it. They're being threatened to say, if you disagree with this, as someone who's competing against this trans woman, if you disagree, we're going to take you to human rights courts, possibly. We're going to disqualify you. We're going to press charges against you. We are going to make sure that you are silent about this issue. Why? Why is there such a push to silence people who disagree, who quite logically, they're, they're not being bigoted or hateful. They're not saying that this person shouldn't exist. They're just saying they shouldn't compete with biological females. That's all. How is that, how is that creating any semblance of competition or fairness for these girls? Another fascinating point I found was that it's taking sports on a, on a worldwide level to highlight the problems with this sort of ideology in, with, within the trans movement. For instance, there are biological males who have raped women and then they now identify as female without any chop, chop, snip, snip, who are in prison, in female prisons. Now, females, biological females are forced to be in prison with biological males who now identify as females. How, how, how is that not a violation of women's rights? And, and that's what is so also ironic that this trans movement, it, it's the fourth or fifth now, I don't know, wave of feminism. And, and it's very sad to see this wave of feminism essentially ruining so much work that women have fought for over the decades. Well, it's not just athletes who are being silenced, but it's scientists that are being silenced. Yeah, it is a clown world out there. I came across this clip on YouTube from Canada with uh, PM Derek Sloan, the MP, excuse me, MP, Minister of of Parliament, Member of Parliament, Derek Sloan from Canada. And I went back to pull the clip so I could put it in the show notes today. And the clip is now off of YouTube. They've actually taken this down from YouTube, which I think is somewhat shocking. I don't know whether the, the channel did or YouTube did, but the video is still up on Canada's uh, CPAC website. This was a, a government-held conference uh, assembly where Derek Sloan is calling out some startling facts about censorship that's happening around science. Now, for the record, before we get into this, because I know this is going to be the first thing that people say is, oh, you're just one of those anti-vaxxer, whatever, denier, conspiracy theorists. No, all, our, all of our kids get vaccinated. I love science. I love vaccines. I think they're great. I think they save lives. What I don't love is when people are being silenced and censored and threatened. And it makes me wonder, it makes me question, why is it? And this is the real question that I have in this, this coming segment. Why 
is it? What is so pertinent? What is so frightening? What is so threatening that these people would be threatened and censored and silenced and berated to the degree, degree that they have for saying something that really doesn't seem to be so controversial. It doesn't seem to be so far out there, and it's actually supported by scientific documents. So here's the first clip with Derek Sloan, Member of Parliament for Canada. On the whistleblower file, things drastically changed on April 30th, 2021. The College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, known as CPSO, issued a dire statement threatening any doctor who spoke out about what they were witnessing on the front lines of our hospitals, in their own clinics, and in our communities. The purpose of governing bodies like the CPSO is to protect the public, not to stifle legitimate scientific inquiry or dissent by professional doctors. But this attempt to intimidate doctors into silence had the opposite effect. My office was inundated with calls of concern. At the time, we began working very closely with multiple groups of doctors and other concerned medical professionals. These honest and hardworking doctors are fully galvanized against the regressive authoritarian overreach of the CPSO and other similar governing bodies. This is a, a interesting tactic here. Uh, a little sidebar. If you want to get your message out there, just get it censored by someone and it's likely to, you're likely to get some kickback. So here, this member of parliament, Derek Sloan, is saying on the 30th, the board released a statement and we'll get more into what actually it actually said, saying any doctors who are going against what our guideline is, even if it's peer-reviewed studies, doesn't matter. Things that you're seeing within your clinics, you cannot speak out about this. If you do, we will come for your license, which is the very antithesis of science. Science is you have an hypothesis, you test it, and if it's wrong, you change it. But you have to stay within that science loop. Well, there is a doctor from Canada, Brian Bridal, who studies viruses, and more importantly, he's a viral immunologist. So he creates vaccines and he studies vaccines. So it, it's his field, field of study. And he speaks out about this. He, he was talking on a radio station a few weeks ago, which really caused him to come to the forefront of this controversy. And I want you to hear what has happened to him since. And ask yourself as you're listening, why would someone go through all of this trouble if if everything that he's saying is just hot air? If this whole thing is just like, ah, oh, come on, it's just another anti-vaxxer, just like, let's, let's move on with the science. Why are people so animus, filled with animus and adamantly against concerns? He's not even making full-blown, hard-blown statements. He's just saying, hey, I have some concerns here. These, these are th something that we should look into and test more before we go on putting the jabs into children. Here is Dr. Byram. So my name is Byram, and I am an associate professor of viral immunology at the University of Guelph. And since the pandemic was declared, I have been trying to serve as a voice of objective scientific opinion so that the public can make the most informed decisions for themselves possible. 
when it comes to issues related to COVID-19. I am a publicly funded servant, so I'm a public servant. You pay for me, Canadians, from your tax dollars. I work at an academic institution which is publicly funded, and therefore I see it as my responsibility to Canadians that when they have questions, that they can come to me and ask the questions, and if they are pertinent to my areas of expertise, then I feel it's my responsibility to give the most informed answer that I can so that they can help make informed decisions. I, I left this clip in. It was a little bit long, him explaining all of this of who he is. But I left it in just for the argument of say, this this guy isn't just a, a random nut that someone paid off and put a mic in front of. He's not just some conspiracy theorist some way, somewhere. He, he works for the government. He works in a university and he studies viruses and he studies immunizations. This is his field of science, his field of study. Two weeks ago, I gave an interview. It was a five minute radio interview. The company that runs the radio show did nothing wrong. The host asked me one question and she did absolutely nothing wrong. She was doing her job. The question she asked me was if I knew whether or not there could be a possible link between COVID-19 vaccines and cases of heart inflammation that have been reported around the world in young males. In this case, it was 12 young males in Israel. And I've been delving into the literature uh, very deeply because I'm a vaccinologist. My entire research program is based on the development of novel vaccines. My publication record is based on publishing information about vaccines. So he's an expert in so this field. So I have field. a lot of expertise in this area. Yeah. And indeed, I oh. have, along with a large number of collaborators, both within Canada and internationally, have developed some serious concerns about the, the current COVID-19 vaccines. And so I felt that I could express concern and that there might be a possible link between this heart inflammation that's occurring and these COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah. After I did this interview, five minutes, again, trying to present to a lay audience, it was like a nuclear bomb went off in my world and my life was thrown upside down. And I, I'm sure my life will never be the same again. So within 24 hours, there was a libelous website that was put up using my domain name. A fake Twitter account was developed to slander me. Now, I don't know what the laws are in Canada, but I, I poked around a little bit and I got a little bit too far in the rabbit hole. Though I almost started emailing people. Uh, but there, there, it seems to be that that is actually illegal. Someone created a website with his name to then slander him and rebut him and essentially destroy his reputation to try to debunk what he was saying. And... The reason that I think that it's actually illegal to do that is they're, they're explicitly using his name and now he's a public figure. So if, if you're just a, a nobody and someone happens to have your name and they're posting stuff, well, that's one thing. But they're using his name, who now he's a recognized figure, and they're using it to create slander against him and to make arguments against him. That is actually illegal. That's actually defamation. At least from what I've read in the United States, I don't know, you know, obviously other laws have, other countries have other laws, and I don't know what Canada has, but it would seem to be that there would be a lawsuit probably already being filed against these actors who are creating uh, Twitter feeds and, and social media profiles, impersonating him, even if they're saying, I'm not the real Dr. Byram, but 
I'm going to put out false information about him. That is liable. And I've been undergoing daily attacks, either through email, people attempting to call me, uh, and, and definitely in the social media. And I never had a, a presence within the social media until recently where, when I now have a fake social media presence. <laughs> a fake social media presence. That's classic. It's, the thing that, I, I, again, I keep asking, why on earth, why on earth from one little interview are people so up in arms? It's not like he's some flat earther out there. He's not pushing some random crazy conspiracy theory. He's actually looking at scientific data and he's raising questions about scientific data. And he's saying, hey, the scientific community should look at these questions. We should address these things because I see that there could be some problems here. And this is a field of expertise for me. What is so controversial? Well, these people who really hate him are going so far. Listen to this, how far and how, how it's like derangement, how deranged people are about this. They even went so far as to release confidential medical information about my parents. <laughs> this is an egregious act. This is a practicing physician. A practicing physician should know that they should not be releasing confidential information about people, medical information in the social realm. I, I mean, it is, it is, I, I don't even have words. So what, what did he say? What did he say that was so crazy? Well, th and this is all coming from a, about a 45, 50 minute press conference. I've cut a bunch of clips up. And so this is not the full length a clip of what he said in his arguments of of concern about these vaccines for children, but here's just kind of like the the nut of it of what he is proposing and arguing and what has gotten him into so much trouble. And what happened in this interview when I was asked if I'm concerned or if I saw potential for a link between heart inflammation and the COVID nineteen vaccines? I said I did, and this is why. What we have learned. And, and we've learned this from a, a, a large body of scientific literature. We've also learned this from reports that were submitted by Pfizer themselves to regulatory agencies, one by in particular to a regulatory agency oh. in Japan. And what we have learned is, I'm very familiar with vaccines, and traditional vaccine technology would tell us that when you put a vaccine into the shoulder, and that's where we get vaccinated with the COVID-19 vaccines, traditional vaccine technology tells us the vaccine would stay on the shoulder. And then what would happen is cells from the immune system would come and pick up the spike protein. All these vaccines get our bodies to manufacture the spike protein, right? So cells of the immune system pick up that spike protein, take it to the local draining lymph node, and activate the immune system. That's why often when we get sick or we've been vaccinated, sometimes our lymph nodes swell because that's where our immune response is happening. And our B and T cells go throughout the body to look for the virus, Okay. So this was an assumption, and I accept that at the early on in the pandemic and when we were first rolling out these vaccines, we've had to largely work based on assumptions. But you know what? The scientific literature has exploded over the last 16 months, and we understand so much more. Okay, and so now we're looking at vaccinating children, and it's no longer okay to proceed based on assumptions. And so what we have found is that this assumption about the vaccine remaining in the shoulder does not apply to this novel vaccine technology that's never been in people before. These messenger RNA vaccines get distributed throughout the whole body. What we have found, in fact, is that as little as 25% of the dose remains in the shoulder. 
and it traffics all over the body. He goes on to to share how there's other chemicals or technology that enables enables the medicine to move throughout the body, which is this is what from my layman's understanding, it really is a layman's understanding. I could totally be wrong on this, but what I understand that he is arguing and saying is that then these mRNA RNA, uh, vaccines and medicine technology goes to other parts of the body, which is why people are seeing uh, issues with their fertility, with with their periods being thrown off, why we're seeing young men in particular having heart issues and even people having died, young men, young children having died after receiving their their shots. Because this this technology isn't meant to be spreading across the body. And and so he's raising legitimate concerns and he's not even raising concerns or making an argument against them altogether in in this interview at least in this press conference, this is what he's saying. He's talking about children and the push now to begin to administer these vaccines to children. And we were trying to deal with something that we felt was extremely dangerous. You know, I can understand, again, moving based on assumptions. But what, remember, what I'm focusing on here are children and vaccinating healthy children. Mass vaccination of millions of healthy Canadian children demands that the level of safety associated with this, the assessed safety profile has to be exceptionally high. What is, what is so controversial about that? That like, why are people so up in arms about that? Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to say, yeah, I, I want, I want to make sure that if I'm vaccinating my child, that this is going to be safe for them, especially when there is very low risk very low risk for children and those under the age of 18, especially if you do not have any other comorbidities. Man, I, I just don't understand it. I don't, I don't understand it. The other argument that we've touched on a little bit, okay, well, this is just a lone nut. Does, is there any other evidence or data to back him up or support him? And he hits that too. And then what I just want to point out is this science is backed up by many scientists and many physicians, including one of the inventors of messenger RNA vaccine technology, Dr. Robert Malone. As Canadians, we have to ask ourselves, do you want your physicians and scientists, their voices suppressed? This is important. We're polarized right now. We're polarized in Canada. We have people on both sides. We have to understand we're just as passionate. We feel that we are trying to look after the best interests. We're doing our cost-benefit analysis, for example, in my case with children. And I honestly feel that by proceeding with vaccination right now, without conducting the proper safety tests, we may do more harm than good. I'm passionate about that, but I'm respectful of those who hold the opposite opinion. I would ask for the same for myself and my colleagues. We can't suppress open discussion of science and medicine in Canada. It's a, it's a hallmark of a democratic society. It, and it's the hallmark of science. If scientists need to be able to discuss and talk and publish and disagree and think, talking is thinking, speaking is thinking. And if we're shutting down our doctors and our scientists from being able to speak up when they're, they're noticing an issue at their clinic or speak up when someone who studies and creates vaccines, even the, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine saying, yeah, this is an issue where there's studies pointing to the, that the fact that this needs to be tested more. He's not saying do away with vaccines. 
He studies vaccines. He's pro-vaccine. He's just saying, we need, we need to understand this thing better before we can deem it to be safe for our children. Well, in this press conference by uh, Derek Sloan, he had another doctor up here on stage, Patrick Phillips, Dr. Patrick Phillips, talking about, again, more government censor censorship and, and what he is saying that the government is pushing on these doctors is quite frightening. On April 30th, uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario came out with a very chilling statement, uh, basically saying that it's the professional responsibility of all physicians not to communicate anti-vaccine, anti-masking, anti-distancing, and anti-lockdown statements and or promoting un uns unsupported, unproven treatments for COVID-19. They... Uh, were very explicit and, and, and threatened investigation and discipline for any physicians who uh, express any of the negative aspects of any of these interventions, uh, no matter what the evidence, uh, what the evidence says. And I have no matter what the evidence says, this is no longer science. It's no longer medicine. Doctors are no longer able to think they're no longer being able to practice the Hippocratic oath to protect people. They're they're being turned into political pawns where politicians are saying, this is what we're doing. This is what we think is right. We're throwing the scientific method to the wayside. If you have conflicting data and conflicting evidence, you can't talk about it. And if you do talk about it, we are going to silence you. I have to say, over this last year, I've done a lot of research. of looking into the looking into the evidence around uh, lockdowns, but especially around treatments. And I want to I want to especially make a point around uh, a few treatments. One of them, for example, is vitamin D, which which uh, our health minister has. Uh, um, has named fake news. Vitamin D. Vitamin D is sunlight. <laughs> don't go. Don't get sunlight. It's fake news. Don't believe that vitamin D can help you. I've you know I've been taking vitamin D for a while now. Vitamin C and vitamin D. Growing up, I'd always take vitamin C and echinacea, and it works. Taking vitamins, it works. There's no adverse effects to taking vitamin D. In fact, uh, I, I know living here in the Middle East, people often lack vitamin D. I know I lack vitamin D because I'm not out in the sun enough because it's so dang hot, so hot. And so I need to take vitamin D just D as just as a, as a natural supplement. Well, he begins to talk about some other, some other treatments and medicines that are actively being censored and shut down and banned from being used, even though they're seeing good results. And we'll, we actually get into why this might be the case. But uh, I want to emphasize that there's over 85 studies and 27 treatment trials. Many of these are peer-reviewed scientific literature that, that have shown a 56% reduction in mortality in patients who take vitamin D compared to those who don't for COVID-19. But even more so, because that was very early on, what we've learned in these last few months is about ivermectin. Uh, we have on our hands, a very safe treatment that's won a Nobel Prize. Billions of doses have been administered throughout the world because it's a commonly used antiparasitic that's over the counter in many, uh, many countries around the world. And because at this point, we have 97 studies and 
over 30 randomized control trials that have shown a huge benefit to this medication in reducing the risk of death and hospitalization in patients who have COVID. So you got to pause and ask, well, man, if this is true, if there are all these studies, if, they, if there all, is all this data for ivermectin, well, if it's true, then why on earth would a government want to shut that down? Why on earth would big tech want to shut that down? Why on earth would people not want to listen to what doctors like him have to say? Why would it just be completely silenced and censored? That, that makes me stop and wonder, like, this is weird. This is really strange. If I have a patient sitting in front of me who has COVID-19 and they can't breathe or they're at high risk of being hospitalized or dying, I can't just stand in front of them knowing what I know, a 75% reduction in mortality and not give this uh, to my patients. But more- and, and he's not even saying don't take something else. All he says is they're not even arguing and saying don't ever get a vaccine. They're just saying, hey, if you have COVID, this will help, or, or even if you don't have COVID, vitamin D will help and ivermectin might help. So, man. More so, uh, seeing what's, what's happening with the Ontario Science Table, not recommending this medication, even recommending against vitamin D, which Insane. I think is unthinkable because the harm is none. <laughs> this is a natural substance. And they're telling us not to give this to these patients despite mortality benefit. I know there's something going wrong, and I knew I needed to speak out, no matter what the college does to my license. So why? Why, 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 why all the censorship? Well, Byram comes back on stage, and he drops this, he drops this line, which I was like, oh, that's what's going on. I see now. Maybe, maybe everyone else is in on the joke, and I'm just late to the party, but here's Byram again. But what we do have to be obligated to do is follow the weight of the science. Just like Dr. Phillips mentioned when it comes to ivermectin, right? I actually was quite a skeptic about ivermectin. I'll be totally honest, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was a complete skeptic. He was a skeptic because he studies uh, vaccines and he believes in vaccines. So this is not coming from an anti-vaxxer. Because I developed vaccines and I knew that something like the vaccines could not be uh, used in Canada under an emergency use authorization, if there were good, accepted, you know, and safe treatments available. Whoa, 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 whoa. let's play that again. Under an emergency use, could not be uh, used in Canada under an emergency use authorization, if there were good, accepted, you know, and safe treatments available. Vaccines could not be used if there were good and acceptable other treatments available. Insane. That's something like the vaccines could not be uh, used in Canada under an emergency use authorization if there were good. Because of the emergency youth authorization, because these are still under emergency operation. They're not fully approved yet. So all of a sudden you see, oh, here's a reason. Here's a reason that we can't say, well, these other things work. Because we want to invest billions of dollars, we have invested billions of dollars, and Big Pharma wants to get their money. That's what I think. I mean, that's, that's the only reason that I can fathom of why a government would want to stop medicine that is proven to be safe, that isn't requiring some brand new technology that doesn't seem to have a lot of side effects, and from at least the initial studies, 
it seems to work great. Maybe not 100% effectiveness, but at least it's helping a little bit. Like, why, why not? Accepted, you know, and safe treatments available. So I was actually okay with the initial couple of papers that got published, which weren't, these were trials that weren't run properly. They, they, the control group was, it, these were running countries where the control group was taking an unknown amount of ivermectin. So essentially we were studying uh, ivermectin-treated group to a group that was treated to an unknown degree with ivermectin. So here he's saying, in the beginning of this whole pandemic, he was very skeptical and he didn't like ivermectin because he didn't, he looked at the science, he looked at the data and said, ah, oh, these studies are all flawed. This, we should continue to go along the vaccine route. But now... But I was okay with it because I knew vaccines, and I'm a vaccinologist, wouldn't be acceptable. But as Dr. Phillips has mentioned, because I'm developing the vaccines, I've kept a close eye on these therapies. And, and what I saw was, over time, an avalanche of data in favor of these. And I'm a scientist, and I have to follow the science. I'm a scientist, and I have to follow the science. But no longer, no longer are people able to think, no longer are athletes able to say, um, actually, there's something called science. There's something called biology. There's something called a biological male, and they're built differently than women, which is why we had biological male and biological female separation in the sports and the Olympics in the first place so that we can have the NBA and the WNBA, so we can have women's soccer or football. It's, 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 it's why, so that we can have equal levels of, of sport and include more people. Science. Science, ladies and gentlemen, the scientific method, but no longer. No longer can we have the scientific method because the scientific method has been replaced with what? Well, here's Philip Patrick's. So this level of censorship uh, in uh, forbidding physicians to be able to speak about the harms of these interventions, uh, this mixing of politics with medicine is... Mixing of politics with medicine. And what is the mixing of politics with medicine? So medicine is unprecedented, and I frankly think it's very dangerous. Dangerous. I seen it before. It's dangerous when we're mixing politics and medicine. Wow, it, it, that is a scary, a scary road to go down. When, when we ditch, we totally ditch the scientific method for our, our, our political ideologies. Where no longer can we have disagreement and, and follow data points, even if it, if it disagrees. Isn't that, isn't that what science is all about? Oh, God, if, you, if you get value out of the show, if you get value out of the show, we'd ask that you would support the show in the level that you receive value, value for value. And you can do that by visiting the website and giving fiat currency over there, or you can stream Bitcoin by listening on value-enabled, Bitcoin-enabled apps that are podcasting 2.0 certified, like Podfriend, Breeze, Finks, and Podstation. I personally like Breeze. It's the my podcast streaming app of, of choice. Uh, to find one of these apps, you can visit newpodcastapps.com and find a player with the value tag. If you want to get more value out of this show, you can do so by talking about it with a colleague or coworker or spouse, SMSing, texting, WhatsApping this episode to them. I love when I get an episode texted to me. It makes me makes me like that someone's thinking about me. I'm like, oh, I have 
I have friends that they send me stuff and we can talk about it. We can disagree. We can debate. And it's through that mechanism of talking that we're able to build a healthy and cohesive worldview. It's by sending stuff to people so that we can have a disagreeing conversation and actually nurtures and creates a more resilient community. Because, you know, on the show, we talk about, you know, discern the truth, pursue the truth. What I am not saying right here is this is the truth. I'm not saying everything that we just talked about with, with the COVID and the vaccinations, I'm not saying this is the truth, but I am saying that, that it is truth that we need to be able to talk about. I am saying that what truth is, that the, what the true worldview is that is going to lead us into health and happiness in a better society is being able to disagree, is being able to use the scientific method, is being able to look at the data and to talk about stats and statistics and look back and forth to understand. That is what is, is true. Whether or not this data pans out, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm not a scientist. I have not spent hundreds of hours reading through all these scientific studies and articles and papers. I haven't. But I do know that if we silence people or even in our communities, if, we, if we're silencing people in our communities, we're not going to have robust communities. And remember, you as a leader in your community, your role is to define reality. And one of the culture points that we need to be sure that we're defining within our culture, within our community, within reality, is the fact that we ought to disagree, that we ought to come with, with our data, with our arguments, to think critically about what's happening in the world around us. And what better way than this episode, which might be controversial for some people in your circle. Well, don't go away. We are going to be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny wisdom. I love wisdom. It keeps you on the straight and narrow. It keeps you away from snares. The, the, the beginning of wisdom and wisdom is this, get wisdom. You want wisdom? Then get wisdom. And that's what we do here on this section. And today's quote is a little different. Actually, is comes from the end of that uh, press conference by a third doctor. And I'm just going to play the quote for you now. My name's uh, Dr. Donald Welsh. I'm a professor of physiology at the University of Western Ontario. I thought I'd start today by just considering some of the words of Richard uh, Freeman, who was a physicist and Nobel laureate, who whimsically stated the following about science. If you don't make mistakes, you're doing it wrong. If you don't correct those mistakes, you're doing it really wrong. And if you can't accept you're mistaken, then you're not doing it at all. So that was by Richard Friedman. He was a, a physicist and Nobel laureate, smart guy, knows what he's talking about. He's done a couple things. He's a scientist. He knows the scientific method. And he said, if you don't make mistakes, you're doing it wrong. If you don't correct those mistakes, 
you're doing it really wrong. And if you are, this is what I added, if you are so prideful and blind to accept you are mistaken, then you're doing it all wrong. And that is the trap that we need to stay far away from, pride. Pride that blinds because it's pride that goes before the fall. And when we are prideful and we are blind and we are arrogant to accept and admit that we have made mistakes, then the only thing left is to is our downfall, is our humiliation. But if we walk in humility, if we walk with a multitude of counselors, if we bring people around us that see the world differently, that correct us, that challenge us, this is what, why there's boards on companies. You don't want a, a homogenous board of everyone who thinks the exact same way as you. When you build a board on a company, you're getting different areas of expertise, different viewpoints, so that there is conflict, so that you can lead your company in the right direction, into a healthy direction. And the same thing with our lives. We need people around us in our lives to call us out, to disagree, and we need the humility in our lives to admit when we are mistaken. I mean, if I didn't admit that I was mistaken in my marriage or with my kids, because I'm often mistaken with my kids as well, then man, I would, my relationship would end up running into the ground. I'd be doing my relationships wrong. I'd be doing the, the culture of my community wrong. I would be doing life wrong. And going back to the beginning of the quote, if you don't make mistakes, you're doing it wrong. Life and th- this process and what we're, we're talking about and going through each and every one of us, it's not about getting it perfectly right, but it's about risking and trying exploring, testing, learning, so that we can correct ourselves and we can get it right. But we can't do that in isolation. We have to do that with a community of people around us. Thank you so much for being uh, here today on the episode 234. Great episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, especially the laughs at the beginning. Uh, Remember, you are a truth seeker, someone who goes out and seeks the truth and conflict and the scientific method is one great method to seek to reach that. So this week, go out, uncover your purpose so that you can own your future.